Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, elder abuse, prescription drug abuse, suicidal ideation, and addiction. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. While many people dream of a retirement spent cruising the Caribbean or drinking their way through Italian vineyards, more pragmatic individuals understand that a large chunk of their 401ks, IRAs, and saving accounts will be going toward healthcare. It's no secret that the elderly require more intensive health treatments. And today, end-of-life care is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's led to many patients and their families complaining about the high cost of old age. But for Dr. John Bodkin Adams, medical care didn't cost enough. He felt his care for his aging patients merited more than just his salary as a GP in the small town of Eastbourne, England. According to numerous allegations, Adams believed he'd earned everything his patients had, their possessions, their money, and even their lives. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm so happy to be assisting Alistair by providing some medical insight into part one of our case of Dr. John Botkin Adams. In this installment of Medical Murders, we'll gain insight into some of what motivates people to become doctors, how they abuse this privilege, and how these decisions influence their ethical commitment to their Hippocratic Oath. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Dr. John Bodkin Adams, a general practitioner thought to be responsible for hundreds of deaths in Southern England between 1935 and 1956. Though he was only charged with one Many of Adams' presumed victims had a similar profile. They were elderly, usually widowed, and terribly wealthy. Today, we'll examine Adams' lust for money and status and how he preyed on his victims over decades. Next time, we'll look at the Scotland Yard inquiry into Adams' misdeeds, the unprecedented trial, and how the fallout forever changed the British medical establishment. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Here comes the hearse again, a grey-haired woman whispered to her husband as they sipped tea at a local cafe. It was her grim nickname for the silver Rolls Royce that often puttered down the streets of Eastbourne, England. The couple's laugh was halted by the driver's chilling glare. He stared at them, into them, as though he'd heard their ridicule. The man was John Bodkin Adams. He was a local Christian doctor, ruddy-faced and balding, always on the way to check on another patient. Bottles clinked inside his medical bag as the Rolls-Royce drove on, away from the couple in the cafe. It came to a stop outside a towering mansion. Upstairs, the house's wealthy mistress, Gertrude Bobby Hullett, had not yet awakened. A nurse stood watch by the woman's bed, Worry scrawled upon her face as she waited for the doctor to arrive. Soon, his heavy footfalls echoed from the stairwell. Dr. Adams entered the room and dismissed the nurse. Then, he hovered over his sleeping patient. He clasped Bobby's frail hand as her chest rose and fell under the heavy blanket. Eventually, she stirred, smiling when she noticed the doctor beside her. In the half-light of dusk, Dr. Adams prepared a large syringe and drew a mystery liquid from a glass bottle. He injected it into Bobby. When delirium swam in her eyes, Adams presented her with a piece of paper. He asked her to sign it. But the woman was unable to so much as scrawl her name. Her eyes fell shut once more. Adams packed his equipment and stormed out. In the dark bedroom, the woman slept again. Her breathing was still irregular, but she was lucky. The unsigned paper may have been the only thing keeping her alive, and if rumors are true, it's a possible scenario that played itself out dozens of times in the small seaside town. John Bodkin Adams' twisted sense of obligation was ingrained in him from a young age. 
Growing up in Randallstown, Northern Ireland in the early 1900s, he was part of a small Christian community known as the Plymouth Brethren. Adam's family had a story that illustrated their views well. One day, when he was a child, Adam's friend offered him an apple. Adam's declined. When his father overheard the boy rejecting his friend's generosity, he called young Adam's ungracious and descended upon him with righteous fury. This form of parenting likely had a strong impact on Adam's, especially his ideas of what a good person might be entitled to. The strict parenting stopped abruptly when Adams was just 15 and his father passed away. This tragedy left the care of the family on Adams' shoulders since he was the eldest son. Adams was thrust into a role he was likely unprepared for. In need of a lucrative career path, he decided to follow in the footsteps of his uncle and namesake, John Bodkin. John Bodkin was an accomplished doctor and missionary, so John Bodkin Adams had much to live up to when he began his medical education. Four years after his father passed, Adams' younger brother William died from influenza. At 19, Adams was now solely financially responsible for his mother, Ellen, and his cousin, Sarah. Adams took on this responsibility even as he began medical school. But the pressure soon became too much. Adams suffered a nervous breakdown and had to take a year off of school. Still, Adams did not want to dishonor his father or his uncle. He eventually earned his medical degree by the skin of his teeth and without honors. Just graduating medical school is a huge accomplishment, Alistair, honors or not. However, someone's academic performance during this training period can have an effect on their eventual employment, depending on where they hope to end up practicing. This is especially true for surgeons because there's a unique precision involved in their work, and it's also the case for doctors who hope to teach at university hospitals or work in research settings. Conversely, when it comes to doctors who want to work in private practices, their ability to thrive professionally rests largely on personality and bedside manner. And although these are prerequisite assets for private physicians, their practices will either sink or swim, depending most on the quality of the care they provide for their patients. Educational exceptionalism is, of course, something to strive for, but in the end, it's not the only ticket to success. And fortunately for Adams, academic performance proved to be less valuable than good old-fashioned nepotism. In 1920, Adams met a surgeon who was a fan of his uncle. He gave Adams a post at the Bristol Royal Infirmary, or BRI. While at the infirmary, Adams was granted yet another stroke of luck. A doctor at the BRI handed him an ad from a Christian newspaper. A group of general practitioners in Eastbourne was hiring a pious individual to work at their practice. In addition to medicine, religion is also something that can be central to someone's health, routine, and overall sense of well-being. So it's no wonder that the two often intersect. 
A group of doctors hiring, based solely on someone's faith, suggests that this collection of practitioners had a very targeted clientele and a desire to work with like-minded individuals. Although I've personally never encountered or worked with a religiously inclined medical group, these kinds of doctors can be really helpful for those whose faith needs to be an important consideration in their treatment. Practitioners in these groups can offer patients healthcare and medical advice with their personal religious needs in mind and are also able to form unique doctor-patient relationships founded exclusively on religious terms. With Adam's devout upbringing, he certainly had a leg up in Eastbourne's hiring pool. With his Plymouth Brethren background, medical degree, and a little practical experience at the infirmary, Adams was a perfect candidate for the GP group and was quickly hired. With this new job, Adams would finally be able to support his family comfortably and, not to mention, command some respect. As part of the GP group, Adams was in charge of his own patient list. He began working in the resort town of Eastbourne. He loved entering the old stone mansions and brushing elbows with the high-class residents. He felt it was his right, given all he'd gone through to get here. Before long, Adams was running in the same circles as his patients, going to the same nice restaurants and donning the same fashionable attire. He learned to shoot game and went on luxurious holidays. And he could soon count many influential locals as his dear friends. But leisure and appearances weren't Adams' only priorities. He was almost always on call and would drop everything to tend to a patient in need. Because of this, his business grew rapidly. As he built out a substantial practice with well-heeled clientele, Adams upgraded from traveling via bicycle to scooter and finally to motorcar. His vehicle of the moment seemed to symbolize his growing success. After all, he didn't want to arrive at patients' mansions on two wheels. Around 1923, Adams visited his most important patients yet. Steel magnate William Moorhood and William's wife, Edith. To Adams, the Moorhoods were the very model of English sophistication, everything he longed to be. Adams felt that he desperately needed their favor, and he did everything in his power to earn it. For example, when Edith broke her leg, he wasn't qualified to operate on it himself, so he found her a top-notch surgeon. Adams became a more frequent visitor, popping by for general wellness checks. The Moorhoods knew when they hired Adams that he had an incredible work ethic. Not to mention, he was a devout Christian. So when the wellness checks became even more frequent, they still welcomed him. It wasn't long before Adams began to display more peculiar behavior. He openly admired luxury objects the Moorhoods owned. At times, he even had the audacity to ask them to loan him their belongings. The Moorhoods simply waved off his odd behavior, even when it made them uncomfortable. They likely told themselves that deep down, their doctor had a kind heart. But Adams was growing tired of his perceived lower status in society. He thought that his patients should show a little more grace and generosity. 
That's what good Christian townsfolk would do. And if they wouldn't properly compensate him of their own volition, he'd have to get creative. Coming up, Adams crosses the line. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. By the mid-1920s, Dr. John Bodkin Adams was an in-demand physician in the seaside enclave of Eastbourne, England. His clients included wealthy and respectable retirees like steel industry businessman William Moorhood and his wife, Edith. But Adams' intentions weren't entirely good-hearted. He wanted in with the prestigious couple. Despite their relatively good health, Adams made frequent house calls to the Moorhoods' home. His unusual behavior escalated when Adams asked the Moorhoods to purchase him a set of steel medical tools. Perhaps he thought he deserved a gift based on how hard he worked for the family. Although they found it odd, the Moorhoods obliged. He was their doctor after all. He needed top-of-the-line equipment. Although it's sadly becoming less common, in the 1920s, local doctors often grew very close to families they treated. Despite these days representing simpler times, Dr. Adams' requests for gifts were just as out of line back then as they'd be now. Dr. Adams violated the boundaries of professional ethics, and in this situation, a patient these days would be able to report a practitioner like him to their state's medical board, which would likely result in some form of disciplinary action. 
A large part of a doctor's oath is dedicated to the ethical treatment of patients, but regardless of this, some healthcare professionals continue to cross lines they shouldn't. Some of these violations include entering into a business relationship with a patient, refusing someone ongoing treatment without a referral, and forming romantic bonds with patients. I've actually known doctors personally that have fallen in love with their patients, and ethically, at that point, they needed to immediately refer them to another doctor. If a patient feels violated in any way by their caretaker, they should know that the medical board is their best option for recourse. Patients can additionally file civil lawsuits against their doctors if the offense or violation is significantly egregious. It's key that doctors don't blur the line between the personal and the professional. The ramifications go way beyond individual patient relationships. They bleed into a healthcare provider's entire reputation and livelihood. But in the late 1920s, John Bodkin Adams' reputation was just fine. In fact, he grew more esteemed. His patients valued his superb level of service, and he remained well-liked even as he continued to tap them for extra funds. He would even pick out items for himself at local shops and charge the purchases to patients. By 1930, a few years after he began taking gifts from his patients, Dr. Adams owned two motor cars and lived in an eight-bedroom house with his mother and cousin. But as his wealth and reputation grew, more troubling signs began to surface. Adams' medical determinations weren't always sound. For example, he once diagnosed a patient with gallstones, but the patient disagreed. Despite the patient's misgivings, Adams charged ahead and scheduled an operation to address the supposed gallstones. However, before that surgery could occur, the patient sought an X-ray from another doctor. According to the X-ray, Adams was, in fact, wrong. There were no gallstones. In another case, one of Adams' patients suffered damage to her eye after a tennis accident. According to Adams, this patient could no longer sign checks as a result of the injury, and he offered to take over her affairs as power of attorney. But one of her friends stepped in and discouraged this. The patient took her friend's advice and declined Adams' offer. Though Adams' relationship with the patient was purely professional, he was reported as being very annoyed at her decision. How dare she reject his generous offer of legal aid? Didn't she understand she was keeping him from being a good Christian? Deep down, he seemed to feel that he was unfairly excluded, and the embarrassment from these two incidents must have angered him. Adams might be characterized as codependent, he needed to be needed. And in 1933, he needed a more vulnerable patient, someone who didn't have anyone else looking after them. He found that in one Mrs. Witten. Mrs. Witten was a well-off widow who boarded at a local hotel. She needed regular in-home care, and Mrs. Witten had no family nearby, so in Adam's eyes, she was a perfect target. As always, Adam's treatment began innocently enough. He dropped in for regular scheduled wellness checks, 
Over time, he developed a rapport with Mrs. Whitten. He made it seem as though he genuinely cared about her, so eventually, when Adams brought up the topic of her finances and how to handle her money when she died, Mrs. Whitten was open to these conversations. Though her agreeableness might have been due to more than just their rapport. As the hotel staff observed, when Adams was around, Mrs. Whitten appeared dull and lifeless. But when he was away for an extended period, she became lively again. Based on his treatment of patients later in his career, Adams was potentially using morphine and at times heroin to sedate Mrs. Whitten. No one should be making major financial decisions while they're under the influence of narcotics. Short-acting opiates, like morphine and heroin, do more than alleviate pain. They also induce feelings of euphoria because they flood the brain with chemicals like dopamine and serotonin, which lead to feelings of pleasure and relaxation. Because the opiate binding sites, or opioid receptors, are mostly located in the limbic system, cortex, and brainstem, these drugs disrupt certain behavioral and emotional responses, decision-making, and memory retrieval. In this way, Mrs. Witten could have been more open-minded or suggestible when it came to Dr. Adams' manipulations. Even on the outside chance that this over-medicating had a minor impact on her mental state, the way he was drugging her seems extremely unethical and even predatory. By the looks of it, Adams was testing out his method for gaining full control. Despite this, Mrs. Witten believed they were close friends. But on the night of May 10th, 1935, Adams allegedly betrayed her. That night, hotel staff called Adams to Mrs. Witten's room. The elderly woman was breathing heavily and irregularly. The staff believed she was having a stroke. Adams injected her with an unknown substance, then left the room. The staff were stunned. They stood by Mrs. Witten for the next two hours, helplessly watching her die. After Mrs. Witten passed, Adams returned and examined the body. He claimed her cause of death was myocardial degeneration, high blood pressure, and renal insufficiency. Myocardial degeneration, high blood pressure, and renal insufficiency are considered chronic conditions that can lead to deadly health complications. Myocardial degeneration refers to weakening of the heart's muscles due to various factors such as age and progressive fat accumulation. Naturally, as the heart deteriorates, so does every other organ in the body. High blood pressure can lead to things like coronary artery disease and stroke, and renal insufficiency or compromised kidneys can lead to a dangerously inadequate filtration of toxins in the blood. Because these illnesses lead to complications that directly cause cardiopulmonary arrest or death, they shouldn't have been listed in tandem as the primary cause of death. Crediting something like a stroke or arrhythmia does make sense, but listing the ailments that cause these things doesn't. This is all pretty fishy, Alistair, especially given that Adams likely knew all of this. Who knows, he may have even recruited some mystery drug, like a benzo or barbiturate, to heighten the sedating effect of the opiates, potentiating a death from an overdose. Regardless of how she died, 
it was undeniable that Dr. Adams' favorite patient was gone. But his involvement with her wasn't done yet. In the following weeks, Mrs. Witten's stepchildren were furious to discover that they'd been left out of the will. Evidently, she did not leave them a single penny. However, she did leave Dr. Adams and his cousin, Sarah Henry, substantial inheritances. They received valuables, including jewelry and a car, plus an additional £2,000. At the time, that was easily enough money to buy a house. Naturally, this turned heads, but the gossip surrounding the large inheritance still didn't dissuade others from requesting Adam's services. Among those new patients was Agnes Pike, whom Adams began seeing around 1940. Once again, it seems Adams plied her with copious amounts of morphine. Eventually, she began to behave erratically, so her family brought in another doctor for a second opinion. That doctor found no explanation for the supposed morphine injections. When he asked Adams about it, Adams defended himself, arguing that Agnes might become violent otherwise. But Agnes dismissed Adams anyway. Once she was no longer under his care, she recovered. Adams realized he'd have to fine-tune his methods, and he soon gained the opportunity to do so. World War II. When the war began, Adams remained in Eastbourne. Not only did he take on patients whose regular doctors had been drafted, he also volunteered at a local hospital. There, Adams became a qualified anesthesiologist. During World War II, a lot of doctors were sent to the front lines. In their absence, the ones left back at home were tasked with learning new specialties, including fields like anesthesiology. Because of the doctor shortages across the nation at that time, expedited three-year accredited medical school programs were created as part of a general war effort. Dr. Adams' anesthesiology training during the war would have been rigorous and draining, but it would have also left him sufficiently prepared. This medical specialty involves managing pain with anesthetics during invasive surgeries, along with developing a deep understanding of critical care medicine. Anesthesiologists monitor their patients' vital signs before, during, and after surgeries, and their training gives them the tools to keep their patients optimally safe during all of this. The education would have given Dr. Adams a very thorough understanding of dosing and of the fine line between life and death while dynamically manipulating these medications during a surgery. Drugs that anesthesiologists administer are inherently designed to slow heart rate and respiration, which effectively and safely puts people to sleep. It's possible that by entering this medical field, Adams fine-tuned his hand at the evils he'd later inflict on his vulnerable patients. And despite the long hours at the hospital, Adams continued his daily house calls. Adams carefully injected patients with barbiturates and opiates, and at this time, it's believed he took several more victims. The house calls and shortage of doctors meant he could easily be the recording physician at the time of patients' deaths, and of course, weasel his way into their wills ahead of time. 
it seemed Adams was running a long con on the elderly residents of Eastbourne. Nowhere is that more evident than in the case of the Moorhoods, the wealthy couple who'd once bought him a steel surgical set. In 1949, William Moorhood was struck by cancer. William and his wife Edith had remained under Adams' care all this time. Naturally, Adams came to check on him even more frequently. Standing in the hallway during one visit, Edith overheard something that shocked her. Inside the bedroom, Dr. Adams whispered to William. He asked the dying man to leave his money to him and promised he would care for Edith. Infuriated, Edith entered the room and demanded that Adams leave the house at once. She then called their lawyer to prevent any changes to their will. Adams was furious. The Moorhoods had been his patients for years. In his mind, it was Adams' care that had allowed William to live as long as he did and grow so wealthy. So Adams believed he was entitled to some of that wealth. Instead, the Moorhoods cut him off entirely. Sometime later, William passed away. William Moorhood's funeral started as expected, but within no time, guests noticed Adams was present. Some found it odd knowing about the confrontation with Edith. Their surprise only intensified when Adams loudly complained about being left out of William's will. Even after the funeral, Edith's trouble with the doctor wasn't over. One day, while Edith was feeling unwell and resting in bed, Adams barged into her room. He marched over to the desk and rifled through a drawer. Finally, he withdrew a 22-carat gold pencil. He held up the pencil like a trophy and remarked that he finally got something from William. Then, he left. As if that weren't enough for the doctor, though, he later charged Edith an exorbitant bill for his mostly unsolicited services over the years. This scandal only further divided the town's opinions about Dr. Adams. One side believed that he was a good Christian who eased patients' suffering at the end of their lives and deserved his wealth. The other believed he was out to get rich by any means necessary. What both sides may have overestimated was the role that money played at all. Yes, Adams coveted a lavish lifestyle, but it's possible that was less so because he enjoyed the lifestyle itself and more so because he wanted people to see him living that way. To know he was a successful, good person. This outward appearance was yet another way he manipulated his patients. About two years after William Moorhead's death, Adams sought another target. But this time, his narcissism would get the best of him. Up next, the heat has turned up on Adams' medical practice. Now, back to the story. In the 1930s and 40s, John Bodkin Adams rose to prominence as a general practitioner in the town of Eastbourne, England. 
his wealth skyrocketed as his practice boomed. Though many locals believed this was because Adams often found his way into patients' wills before they died, for good or ill. Most recently, Adams caused a scene at the funeral of William Moorhood, one of his former patients. William's wife, Edith, had prevented the doctor from wriggling into the departed's will. The incident dominated town gossip for weeks, but apparently it never actually harmed Adam's business. So through 1951, he continued treatment as usual. Winter came with a vengeance that year, and he provided extra care to one particular widow, Margaret Pilling. According to Adams, she was suffering from a case of influenza. Adams told Margaret's in-home nurses to keep the patient in bed and that his continued treatment was absolutely necessary for her recovery. As he did with patients before and after, he likely prescribed Margaret barbiturates to help her sleep. Two weeks later, Margaret was still bedbound. Her daughter, Elaine, came to visit and did not like what she found. Her usually talkative mother appeared constantly to be in a state of unconsciousness. The nurses told Elaine about the drugs that Adams prescribed and the recommendation that Margaret stay in bed. Concerned, Elaine made a decision. One day, when Adams arrived to check on Margaret, her family told him she was being moved. Anger boiled inside him. He was the doctor. He told the nurses that Margaret needed rest. He deserved respect after all his generosity. Keeping his composure as best he could, he explained that Margaret was simply too fragile for any sort of travel. Not wanting to risk Margaret's health unnecessarily, the family asked if they could at least consult another doctor for a second opinion. Frustrated, Adams said he would bring in his own specialist from London, and he left the room. Days passed as Margaret's daughter Elaine waited for Adams' specialist to arrive. In the meantime, Margaret only grew more dazed. Elaine had to do something. So she and her family formulated a plot. They hired a private ambulance and arranged for Margaret to leave town without giving Adams even the slightest warning. And early one morning, before Adams arrived, Margaret's family smuggled her out of Eastbourne. No longer in his care, she slowly withdrew from whatever medications the doctor had been keeping her on. As the weeks passed, she regained her wits and her ability to carry on normal conversation. She lived peacefully for almost another two years. This ordeal sent the townspeople into a tizzy. But some still gave Adams the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps they assumed Margaret had merely left to be closer to home. Regardless, this all remained gossip. Adam's true nature had yet to become clear, but soon it would. The course of Adam's career changed forever following an incident with 50-year-old Bobby Hullett. 
Much like the Moorhoods, Bobby was a vivacious socialite and had been Adam's patient for some time. In fact, following the death of her first husband, Adams had introduced Bobby to her new spouse, Jack. As usual, the doctor became a fixture in the household. The couple viewed him as extended family. Unfortunately, Jack died in 1956, just a few years later. Adams listed a cerebral hemorrhage as the cause of Jack's death. Bobby took Jack's death hard, and in an effort to help her cope, Adams prescribed her a nightly barbiturate. The dosage was notably high, but it's likely that Bobby didn't know the difference. The drugs had a terrible effect on Bobby. She began to display signs of addiction, worrying the nurses and other household staff. Still, Adams maintained her drug regimen. The situation grew dire when Bobby began discussing suicide. This was unusual behavior for her, and Adams, for his part, continued Bobby's regular course of treatment with barbiturates. And then, sure enough, Adams offered Bobby end-of-life financial services. Under Adams' urging, 50-year-old Bobby rewrote her will. In the event of her death, her Rolls-Royce would be left to, you guessed it, the devoted doctor. She also wrote him a check for a thousand pounds. Adams' intentions drew further suspicion when he cashed the check. At the bank, he reveled in the fact that Bobby was, quote, not long for the world. Two days later, Bobby's staff found her unconscious. Dr. Adams was away at a lecture, so the staff called in another physician, Dr. Harris. Dr. Harris determined that Bobby sustained a cerebral lesion. What Dr. Harris meant here was that he suspected Bobby had a brain injury. These kinds of wounds are survivable, but this all really depends on the amount of damage sustained. Also, any injury to the brain wouldn't directly be the result of taking or overdosing on a drug. Rather, it would come from physical trauma sustained while under the medication's influence. Barbiturates are depressant drugs that slow the central nervous system, so they can lead to a lack of coordination, inhibition, and dizziness, which may result in a serious accident. These meds can furthermore alter behavior, so theoretically, she could have intentionally hurt herself while she was intoxicated. Ultimately, if there was in fact a brain injury, it was likely an indirect outcome of Bobby being heavily drugged. When Adams finally returned from the lecture, he noticed Bobby's condition, as well as Dr. Harris at her side. Immediately, he wondered aloud how Bobby managed to overdose. However, when Dr. Harris told Adams that he believed Bobby had sustained a cerebral lesion, Adams was quick to agree with Harris's preliminary diagnosis. Once Harris was gone, Adams injected Bobby with coramine a drug that could be used to combat barbiturate overdose. But even if Adams intended to save Bobby, this course of treatment came too little, too late. Coramine had to be administered relatively quickly after a patient overdosed, and it was most effective if given every 10 minutes until they awoke. 
Bobby had been unconscious for hours already, and Dr. Adams' dose of coramine didn't revive her. Later that day, Adams told Bobby's daughter Patricia that her mother was suffering from a cerebral problem and that he was doing everything he could to help her. Once Adams felt he'd gained Patricia's trust, he made sure to cover the rest of his bases. He left the manor to visit a local hospital. Once there, he asked the hospital staff how to treat a barbiturate overdose. Fortunately, one of the doctors gave him a drug known as Megamide, a central nervous system stimulant, and provided specific dosage instructions. Bobby was to receive a 10 milliliter IV dose every five minutes. The doctor gave Adams 100 milliliters total. Adams rushed back to the manor, then set up the IV. However, he only gave Bobby a single 10 milliliter dose. Then, over the next few days, Adams injected Bobby with other drugs. Bobby occasionally came too, but she collapsed over and over again. It's hard to say what Adam's endgame was. It's possible that he only wanted it to seem like he tried to save Bobby when in fact he wanted her to die. Or maybe he was biding his time in hopes that saving her life would net him more of her riches. Or perhaps, as he often had before, Adams thought he knew better than the doctor at the hospital. Regardless, on July 23rd, 1956, just five days after Dr. Adams declared her not long for this world, Bobby Hullett drew her final breath. Adams listed her cause of death as a cerebral lesion. And as soon as the funeral plans took shape, the town gossip erupted. But this time, it was different. Eastbourne residents had heard rumors that Bobby talked about suicide. They also knew that Dr. Harris suspected an overdose. So they began to wonder why Adams had simply listed her cause of death as a cerebral lesion. It didn't add up. Unless, as many townspeople believed, Adams caused the 50-year-old to overdose. With rumors and suspicions swirling, a local coroner arranged an autopsy for Bobby Hullett. The coroner found twice the fatal dosage of sodium barbital, a long-acting barbiturate, in Bobby's system. Sodium barbital is a hypnotic depressant drug that was primarily used as a sleeping aid during the first half of the 20th century. Overuse of barbiturates like this can result in respiratory and cardiovascular issues that could lead to poor brain functioning and even death. Today, barbiturates aren't commonly prescribed, and this is because these drugs are exceptionally difficult to dose and they're very threatening to the other aforementioned organs. They've also been linked to impaired kidney function and liver disease. Additionally, they're extremely addictive and can lead to deadly withdrawal symptoms. 
In the rare case that sodium barbitol is prescribed, it's usually done so to control muscle spasms, induce sleep, or prevent seizures. It's also used in veterinary clinics as a sedative. Aside from a physical dependence that comes from the drug, sodium barbitol is especially habit-forming because it sedates and relaxes people, which is very comforting for people struggling with underlying anxiety issues. A sudden cerebral lesion wouldn't have been the result of abusing sodium barbitol, but Adams probably wasn't off base in assuming he could get away with listing such a general cause of death on a certificate. But Adams would not benefit from the less scientifically advanced times he lived in. He had gone too far. The amount of sodium barbitol found in Bobby's system raised the alarms. She'd overdosed either accidentally or intentionally, and either way, Dr. Adams had supplied the drugs. His competence and integrity were still called into question. Adams reasserted that Bobby died of natural causes, but the people of Eastbourne weren't buying it. By the mid-1950s, a total of 132 patients had left the good doctor a legacy. It seemed impossible that all of them had died naturally. There was only one way to settle the matter. Dr. John Bodkin Adams would have to answer to the law. Next time on Medical Murders, Dr. John Bodkin Adams is put on trial, changing the course of the entire British medical legal system. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on John Bodkin Adams, among the many sources we used, we found The Curious Habits of Dr. Adams, a 1950s murder mystery by Jane Robbins, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Drew Moreland, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 